This is Conversation 5, and it is the story of Bill Finnegan, Jerry's oldest brother. Bill was tragically murdered in a bar fight, and in an ironic twist, Jerry is on patrol the night of Bill's stabbing. There's a call from dispatch over the police radio for an ambulance and patrol car. Jerry wants to go to the scene, but his partners don't want to be bothered with a bar fight. They are all unaware Bill is at the bar, let alone involved in the fight. This proves to be for the best after the events of the evening are fully revealed, as Jerry reflects on what would have happened if he was brought face-to-face with his brother's killer. The tragedy of Bill's death devastates Jerry and his family, but when the man who killed Jerry's brother is not prosecuted, and Jerry starts to investigate why, the story takes on an added dimension and a turn of events that exposes Jerry to the police department's habit of cover-ups and corruption. To me, knowing Jerry's life story, the murder of Bill Finnegan is the beginning of the end of Jerry's career and is unraveling as a cop because it starts to loosen the foundation of trust he had in CPD and his job. Here's that conversation. My brother Bill, he was the first child, 12, born to my mom and dad. And my brother Bill was a great guy. Huge heart, would do anything for anybody. He was a truck driver. He also kind of like a father figure to us because my dad was an alcoholic and my brother Bill would assume kind of like a father figure. Although he was my oldest brother, he did a lot with us. He played baseball with us. He played football games with us. He was a competitive person, so he enjoyed that. And he would take us out to different things like Kitty Land which was an amusement park in Melrose Park. So my brother took us there numerous times, and it was great. It was great to go out and be with him. He was with his girlfriend. He did a lot with us, a lot of activities. Took us camping. One of his sister-in-laws and her husband had a a motorboat, so when we went camping, they also introduced uh, my brother Greg and I to water skiing, which was fabulous, something you never experienced as, as a kid in the city. He was there for us for a lot. You know, he always took us places. I think he sensed it because my dad was an alcoholic and didn't take an active part in our lives like that. He stepped in and did that. But I can say a lot of my older brothers and sisters did that. Like my sister Kathy was married young. As a child, I recall her taking us places. Just like my sister Stell and my sister Liz, they were around and they would take us places too. And of course, my brother Sam too, but he was married young. But he did a lot for us as children, too. But my brother, Bill, was really, like, very active with us as far as, like, being involved in our lives, playing softball, playing football, uh, taking us to the, to the museums, taking us to, like I said, the amusement parks, the carnivals. So it was, it was nice. It was nice to have him in that capacity. It was very, it was very enjoyable to have to be around him. Uh, he was a lot of fun. But he, he didn't like crybabies. was there to toughen us up, too. There wasn't an issue with him pulling our hair or teasing us if he didn't feel we were being boys. You know, he wanted us to make sure we were boys and he didn't back down from anybody. We're tough. And he, he was like, took a very, very active role in our life. And what's the age difference between you and him? Let's see. It, it would have to be, he was the first child and I was the 10th child. So probably 20 years. But I'll tell you, I remember him coming home. As a child, some people say, well, you can't remember it that you were just a kid. But I remember him coming home from Vietnam. He went through some things when he first came back, readjusting and everything. 
like everybody who came back from Vietnam. Him and my dad have a disagreement. And actually, when there was alcohol involved, literally having fistfights because I don't know if it was just trauma that he went through or I, I really can't tell what, what the hostility was. But him and my dad were great friends. But some days they were uh, kind of like enemies, literally fist fighting with each other. And you were too young to remember if he willingly enlisted. He was obviously drafted. No, no. It's funny you say that because a lot of people were drafted. My brother, Bill, he volunteered to go in the, he went in the Navy. He was the CB, which was the construction battalion. And he was a little guy. I mean, as far as his size at that time, he was 17. So he was actually on land in country in Vietnam. And his capacity in the service was they were building like orphanages, work around the villages, landing strips made out of that, like Alcoa aluminum and doing that. And actually on the ground in the country. He wasn't in the Marines. He wasn't in the Army. He saw some action. It wasn't like the Army or the Marines. Still in Vietnam, he volunteered to go there. It was kind of unusual. He felt that sense that he had to go when he went. Your brother had this instilled sense of pride that I'm sure came from your father and your mother that he was going to enlist. And he goes to Vietnam and he comes back. And of course, the adjustment for everybody was difficult. He wanted to kind of be like like my dad. He followed in the same branch my father served in. So I think that was kind of maybe he wanted to be accepted more by my dad. I'm not sure or be proud because he went in the same branch. My brother, Bill, he was a great guy. We loved him. But, you know, he was he got in some trouble. Not with the police, but with other people. He was a tough guy. He would fight with people. Sometimes he would win, sometimes he wouldn't. He never backed down from a fight. And it was, it was pretty interesting because I didn't think there was a reason for it. But, I mean, he just was a tough guy. He just didn't back down from anybody. I mean, ultimately, it cost him his life. So he comes home from Vietnam. He's living at home. For a very small amount of time, yeah, then he ended up moving out himself. He moves out. Does he start a life for himself and then he gets married and has a family? Yes. He got married to his first wife. He had a son with her. Their marriage, it didn't last long. I I mean, I think they were around each other probably for about eight or 10 years, but it didn't work out. So he moved on from that marriage. He ended up taking the, the police exam and he got called for the academy. His wife at the time told him, that she would leave him if he took the job. So he passed it up, and I think he regretted that because they ended up not being together anyway. And she didn't want him to be a cop because she thought it would be disruptive for the family or whatever it was. She she stumped his dream. Yeah, I don't. I really don't know what the reasoning was for it because when I was in grammar school and he got called for the academy and he passed it up, and he passed it up again because they give you a couple times he just passed it up again. But he always regretted not taking a position, especially that, you know, went along with her wishes and they didn't stay together anyway. So, yeah, I guess he regretted it. He was a truck driver and he liked it. He did he did well at truck driving. And you're close through these years. You guys maintain a, a relationship. Yeah, Neil, my brothers and I and, and my sisters, and I would say all of us, you can't get along 100% of the time with somebody, even if they're your brother and sister. You're going to have your disagreements or your arguments. I don't remember anybody ever having a falling out where they didn't speak to each other for a long amount of time. Either my mom would get them together and say, listen, your brother and sister or your brother and brother. She would always mend the fences. But I don't really remember anybody having a falling out where they didn't speak for a long time. 
I think uh, my mom and dad ensured that it was always, well, you know, that's your brother. You're right, but you, you need to apologize. Or he's right. Everything would always come around and everyone would always make up. Which is a testament to your parents, as you said. To have that many siblings and everyone's close and gets along, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think my brother, he had a strong will and personality, but he would do anything for anybody. He was stubborn. He would always come around and say, okay, I was wrong. Or sometimes he wouldn't. For the most part, you know, just a, just an all-around great guy. He was always there for family members. And we all try to help each other. If somebody needed to do something, we, that's how we stayed together like that. And we enjoyed being with each other. Take me to that night in September of 1990 and how you found out Bill was murdered. I was working in the police department at the time. I was relatively new. I was working in a unit. I was assigned to the 7th District. There was a deputy chief who was in charge of the three districts that came under his command. Seven was one of them. Eight was one of them. And nine was the other. He was an old-time Irish guy and a really, really pleasant guy. A lot of people couldn't stand him. All John Corliss was his name. And he was a deputy chief. A lot of policemen, they, could, they couldn't stand him. They said he was a hardhead. And he, he played favoritism from one district to the other. Like he hated the seventh district. I never saw that. He put a unit together, and it was called a mission team. Every area in that particular area was Area 3, which encompassed the 7th, 8th, and ninth district. And John Corliss was the deputy chief of the Area 3. So he was looking for guys to be on this mission team. And you'd work in uniform in an unmarked car. And Jim Eldridge, who is a friend of mine and also was a supervisor, at the time, he was looking for somebody to work with him on the mission team, and he asked me if I'd be interested. And I jumped at it because I'm maybe a little over a year on the job, and I'm like, yeah, sure. So it gave me the opportunity to work in the 7th, 8th, and ninth district. Kind of opened it up a little bit, and we could go and make arrests on missions in each one of those districts. And they'd assign us every night to something different. So it was interesting. So that particular night that getting at what my brother Bill comes into play here, I was working with Jimmy Eldridge, another guy, Brad, who was a black kid. He was a very, very good guy. And myself, we were working on a three-man car. We were riding between the 8th and the 9th districts looking for gang activity. And we were driving around and it was kind of slow. It's so monitoring the radio, just like they were. And I heard a call come across for a fight in a tavern on Archer Avenue, just west of Kedzie, approximately Spalding. I said, Jim, because he was driving, I said, I was riding in the back seat. And I said, Jim, what do you say we ride on that job? We'll go see what's going on over there. And he was like, ah, dear, I don't want to go. It's a bar fight. I don't want to be in that bullshit. You know what I mean? I said, all right. So we're driving. We continue to drive. I don't know. Ten minutes later call comes across again and it's a report of a man stabbed at that same location. I said, oh, see, that's, now there's a guy stabbed over there. We could have rolled over there and you know, made a quick pinch. They didn't really want to be involved in it because it's a bar fight and led to a guy get stabbed, so they didn't they weren't too interested. So we're driving and a short amount of time goes by and a couple of beat cars are on the scene from the 8th District and there uh, one guy's on the radio with request for an ambulance, probably I don't know, 10 Fifteen minutes later, they request the detectives and uh, evidence technician for a crime scene. Now we—I know it's an aggravated battery, but it ended up 
turn it into being a, a homicide. So, I, you know, I told these guys, I said, you know, we could have went over there and made an arrest on this. We were that close. And you weren't interested. And now we're calling for the evidence technician over there. Did you have a weird sense or feeling about this being a different moment? I did not. They called for the mobile crime lab. It means there's a homicide. This is going back a while. Pagers were the thing. Everybody carried a pager. And my pager went off. And it was my brother, Joe, calling me. And after was 911. I don't think either one of us, or actually all three of us, none of us had cell phones. So I told him, hit a pay phone. So he found me a pay phone. I called my brother. He goes, Jerry. He said, where are you? And I told him I was at Archer and Western. And he said, somebody stabbed Bill. He said, they're taking him to Mount Sinai. And he says, I think he's dead. And I go, what? And he told me again. And I said, Joe, you, you got to be wrong. And he goes, no, he was at the cage in. And uh, my heart, you know, dropped. And I'm like, you know, thinking, what the fuck? I just heard that call. And it was my brother that got stabbed. So I jumped back in the car. And, you know, I'm pretty upset. And uh, I'm actually... Starting to, starting to tear up and cry a little bit, you know, and told him, Jim, can you head over to Mount Sinai? I think my brother passed away. I think he was stabbed to death in that tavern. So they couldn't believe it. Uh, Warren and I were in my car, and at that time, the only thing that worked that they put on emergency equipment were the headlights, where our oscillating headlights and the siren. So we're flying there, and we get to California. car comes off the expressway ramp, and it's my brother, Sam, and his wife, and my sister, Stell, and they pull over. And we pass them by, but I see it's them. So they're following us. And we go to the emergency room at Mount Sinai. Some of my brothers or my sisters are, are showing up there. And I come walking in and I walk back and I open the door to one of the rooms. The security guard tells me my brother's in there. And there's two uh, guys from the crime lab fingerprinting them. And they go, you can wait outside. I said, well, I'll wait in here. And he goes, I said, that's my brother. I don't give a fuck. I'm not waiting outside. But they didn't say anything. They were fingerprinting them. I mean, he passed away already. That's a normal thing. They fingerprint stuff. Anybody passes away in the city, you know, during a crime. So my family was arriving there, my mom. So it was, it was a pretty rough night. Was your father still alive? Yeah, my dad was still alive. Um, and, uh, you know, Neil, I mean, I, I know this sounds crazy. Uh, I can't remember my dad being there. Um, some of my sisters, one of my sisters lived on a far, far south suburbs. I, she was not there. And one of my sisters lives in Nevada outside Las Vegas. She, of course, wasn't there. Pretty much all of my brothers and sisters were showing up. And my mom, uh, I don't know how she got there that fast, but she was there. So, um, you know, we said our goodbyes. You know, spent some time with them. And, um, you know, uh, I asked, I saw a sergeant in there from 10, uh, the 10th district. That's the 10th district there. And I said, so that was my brother. He passed away. He's in there. You know, he was stabbed to death. And I said, can we, can we get him over to medical examiner? Because my mom's not going to leave here until he's gone. So he says, I, I can't make that call, but he says, we don't, we don't have a wagon up tonight, a squad roll. And that's, a, that's who transports people to the morgue. So I called the watch commander in 10 
and he got on the phone and I told him who I was and I said, sir, can you have a squad will come and take my brother to the medical examiner? Because my mom is here, she's elderly and I, my whole family's here and we're not going to leave the hospital until he's transported. And he goes, well, give me five minutes. And he says, I'll get a, I'll get a squad roll up on the street and we'll get one sent over there and we'll take care of that. And he told me he was sorry about my loss. So we waited and I, he put a wagon up, there wasn't one working. They called a couple guys in the station, had them take a wagon and bring my brother to the medical examiner. So we went over there. There were some formalities that had to be done, paperwork and stuff. And then we left. I was told that my brother, Johnny, was with him at the bar. There was a fight and he was stabbed by somebody to death. The investigation was taking place at Area 3, which was at 39th in California. Called over there. Now, one of the detectives got on the phone. And his name was Volandingham. And he told me, don't come over here. He says, listen, you're going to get jammed up. You come over here and stick in your nose. And I said, stick in my nose. And I said, that's my fucking brother. He goes, I know, but you don't have any business over here. And it's mad. He says, don't come over here. You're going to get jammed up. So I told my family, I said, this guy's told me don't come to the station. Now, I thought that was odd. So I didn't go there. We went to my sister's house. And we were all sitting there waiting for news. And Jimmy Eldred, he came by because I guess he stopped in Area 3. His dad had been a detective there at one time before he made sergeant. And he came there and came to my sister's house. And he told me and us, they were doing the investigation. And he said, the guy that's handling is a good guy, my dad said. And we'll try to get as much information as that. All I know now is there was a fight. It was over a pool game. The guy that he was playing pool with stabbed him to death. We're like, okay. So we're waiting for information. No one's going to bed. So we're waiting for information, waiting for me, information. It never comes that night. Where's your brother, Johnny? Is he downloading? Did he see what happened? Yes. He's actually at Area 3. I would speak to him about it later after his release uh, to go home from there. What he told me was, and told us, was that my brother Bill was playing pool with this guy. They were kind of going back and forth, calling each other names about the shots. You're not shit, this and that. There was some pushing going on between the two of them. It was broken up by the bartender. This guy came back to the pool table, and then they started playing again, and then some more pushing and some punches thrown. The guy went into the bathroom and then came back out. He actually asked, I read the, the interview, all the interviews from the detectives. He asked, my brother, if he could use the bathroom, he asked his permission if he could use the bathroom, which I thought was the craziest fucking thing I've ever heard. He went into the bathroom, but before he went into the bathroom, one of the patrons that was in the bar, he was in there, he knew some people in there, and one of the patrons gave him a knife, a folding knife. So when he came out of the bathroom, he went back by the pool table, and they started arguing again kind of grasped each other and they were pushing each other around and then he stabbed my brother in the chest. Growing up with 12 kids, we watched a lot of TV. My brothers and I watched a lot of movies. I don't know if you recall seeing in The Godfather before he killed the police captain who broke his jaw and the guy who ordered the hit on his father before he goes in the bathroom to retrieve a gun that's planted there by his own guys. He asked permission to use the bathroom. So I thought that was kind of an odd thing. Maybe this guy was a movie watcher. Yeah, like tongue-in-cheek comment. Mm-hmm. I 
the reading file, the interview and everything. He stabs my brother in the chest. My brother John grabs the guy and grabs his hand and hits his hand against the bar and the knife drops. He's trying to leave, but my brother prevents him from leaving. The bartender, I guess, realizes that now that my brother's stabbed, he has to call the police. This guy is a off-duty internal affairs investigator for the Chicago Fire Department. So he calls the police. My brother Bill was friends with the owner and his wife of the bar, this Cajun. They were at my sister and brother-in-law's that night having dinner when this happened. My sister lived in the south suburbs because they knew them too. Turns out that they do not charge this guy with murder because they say, for one, my brother is bigger than him and he was defending himself. I'm not a state's attorney, I'm not an attorney, but I mean, when someone stabbed somebody during a fist fight, I always thought that was a murder. There were probably about a half a dozen people in the bar. Not much use as far as witnesses. I didn't see this, we didn't see that. It wasn't much. My brother John told me when they were at Area 3, this detective up there is the landing ham. So I spoke to my brother that night when he came home and he told me, in essence, what happened. Pretty much what I said. He said when he was at the station, none of the witnesses were separated. They were all allowed to sit together and speak. And he was up there waiting to be interviewed. He was distraught and shocked, in shock. Witnessed the murder of his brother. They brought the state attorney in. They said that this guy was small in stature, but he was not. He was actually muscular in good shape, and actually bigger than my brother. This guy, his name is Michael Wum, or UMB. He's now deceased. He died in 2018. Someone your brother knew, or he had just ran into him in this bar? Ran into him in the bar, never encountered this guy in his life. No prior relationship with him. This guy's story was that he was bringing some pictures around to show those people in the bar that he had taken a party because he was a photographer kind of like a side job type photographer. This guy was charged with possessing a, a knife, and that was the extent of his charges. They were charged with killing my brother. I have pulled Michael Lum up. I believe this is the same individual. Michael J. Lum, he was born May 11, 1954, and died June 1st, 2018. Did he have a record? Was there an investigation done into his background? Yes, he had minor skirmishes with the police. He never served any prison time or anything like that. Weeks passed. There was a court date, and the state dismissed the charges on the knife because they said if any other new evidence came where they could charge him with murder, they would, or involuntary manslaughter. So I started asking around, doing some poking around myself. I was a new guy on the job, but ran into one of the detectives by the case file. I looked up the names. I ran into one of the detectives in court at 26th in California. We had a conversation, and then subsequent conversations after that. Uh, this guy's name was Barney O'Reilly, and he was a detective on that case, handling that case. He just returned from serving on a task force with the DEA, and he said he had never been talked to in the manner he was talked to by the lead detective. He was told he didn't know what he was talking about. That he'd been at the, the DEA and this was homicide and he didn't know what he was doing. 
And he said, I sure had been a detective for years. He said, this guy talked to me like I was an idiot. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. The way he did this whole case stinks. And he said, you know, this guy let these people talk to each other, the witnesses, the case he presented to the state's attorney, he says was, was very weak. And he said, one-sided. It was all against your brother. And this guy being the Landingham. Yes, correct. Richard the Landingham. Guy O'Reilly, you know, he just told me, he said, the way he handled this case was unprofessional. And he said that I didn't agree with the way he was leading it. And him and I had words about it. He told me I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. I was at the DEA too long. He said, Jerry, I'm, I'm just telling you, he said, the guy, it was garbage the way he did the whole investigation. I started going around talking to some of the people who were in the bar. Some didn't want to speak to me. A few of them did. I found out that Mike Lum, his father, was a police officer, Chicago police officer. And him and the Landingham had been partners for a number of years together. That was kind of interesting. Wow. It's more than interesting. Yeah, it was kind of shocking. You know, this guy had some skin in the game. His ex-partner's son stabbed my brother to death. Let's pause for a moment and talk about this. There are so many instances about crimes in Chicago where there's interconnectivity. In this example, the lead detective's ex-partner is the father of the individual that stabbed your brother. I should be surprised, but I'm not because it's Chicago. At this moment in your career, are you shocked or here we go again? What's new? No, at, at that juncture of my career, I was shocked, you know, because I was a relatively new policeman. I'm not naive, but I was fucking blown away. And I'm going to tell you, I just did not, I just could not believe that. One of the sergeants who was later one of my lieutenants, great guy, John Baranowski, didn't have a working relationship with him. I was new on the job, but he was a tactical sergeant in the 7th District at that time. Saw me in the hallway and he pulled me aside and said, I'm John Baranowski. I work downstairs. I said, yes, Sergeant. I know. He said, gave me a hug, which was very nice to me. He said, I'm so sorry about your brother. He said, listen, I got a friend of mine who's in the state's attorney's office. If you'd like to talk to him, you can reach out to him. He'll explain everything right down the line, what happened during the investigation. I said, John, I appreciate it. But I honestly, I said, I'm, I'm kind of sour right now. I really don't want to fucking hear anything from them people. And he goes, I, I gotcha. I gotcha. And he goes, well, if you change your mind, you let me know. Did you feel like they were part of the cover up with the detective? I, I really didn't know. Neil. honestly, I just had the sense that they send these state attorneys out. They work various jobs. They're working felony review. The new people started felony review. This particular guy who I later met in my career, his name was Ken Stinson, young black guy. He was the state's attorney that went out there on that case that day with my brother for that evening. You no, know, I recognized his name from reading the file. You know, and I saw him in court. He was handling another case I was on. And I said, well, I said, I know you, but I don't know you. He goes, really? How's that? I said, well, he handled my brother's death. When he was stabbed to death in a bar. And he goes, oh, geez, I remember that case. He says, I'm sorry. I did what I could do with what I, you know, what I had to work with. And he said, it's tough. He didn't really have enough to charge that guy. 
And I said, well, I mean, someone stabbed somebody. He goes, yeah, but they were fist fight. And I said, what? He said, Ken, I understand, but if you can fist fight escalates to someone stabbing somebody, that doesn't make any sense to me. And he goes, well, I, you know, I understand, you know, I, I'm sorry. And that moment when you met him and brought up your brother's death, you were on another case. That's years after your brother's murder. Yeah, probably about two or three years afterwards. But he remembered it because I told him. When I start hearing this detail of this guy's dad being a policeman and being Valani's partner, former partner, Barney O'Reilly tells me that the way it was handled and how fucking Valandingham was laying off of it. He said that was his, that was what he said too. He's laying he's laying down on it. He said he laid down on the fucking case, which means he didn't push it. I said, fuck it. Somebody told me I should have got a CR number, which is a complaint register number on the investigation. Just a blanket CR number. This way, everything's done by the number. And I said, nah, I'm not going to get a fucking CR number on another cop. At that time, you just didn't do it. But I should have. Because, I mean, fuck the cops. It was my brother here. Did you confront him? Landing him? Yeah. No, I never did. I never did. I'm happy to report that the fucking guy died of cancer and fell down the stairs at Area 3 and, you know, fuck him. Because he laid down on that case and he laid down on that huge case and fuck it, whatever. He had to answer to somebody of the higher authority than me. I want to pause for a moment. Jerry just mentioned the Hughes case and accused the Landingham of laying down on it. I think it's important to know a touch about the Hughes case. It's a Chicago cold case that has a notorious history. A Chicago police detective named Jim Sherlock recently reopened the case and the story is brilliantly told in a book called A Murder in Canaryville. Here's a little blurb about the Hughes case and the book. In 1976, 17-year-old John Hughes was partying with friends in a park when he was shot dead by someone in a passing car. What should have been a simple case wound up going nowhere. Forty years later, Detective James Sherlock, on loan from the Chicago Police Department to the FBI's cold case file, pulled a slender file on the murder and began to reconstruct the case. Though it was never officially solved, Sherlock's dogged police work pretty much makes it clear who killed Hughes, why the incident led to a second murder years later, why there was a cover-up, and just how high it went. One of the suspects had a relative in the police department, judges were likely bribed, and Cohn, who's the author of the book, alleges that Mayor Richard Daly could have been involved. Along the way, Cohn details the history of the mob in Chicago and corruption with the city's police department. So that's a little bit about a murder in Canaryville. Why the Vallandingham connection? Why does Jerry Finnegan bring it up? Jerry brings it up because Vallandingham was brought in on the Hughes case as one of the detectives to investigate a portion of it. What portion, I don't know, but Vallandingham was involved to some capacity. There's a solid theory out there that the Hughes case was bogged down in manufactured confusion and that the police created a lot of chaos to diffuse the potential of someone in that group who was involved in the Hughes murder getting prosecuted. That's the Vallandingham connection. So it got a point of kind of like frustration and I'm thinking, well, 
they're not doing anything for me. So what the fuck's going on here? I'm not getting any legit answers out of this. So I called the FBI, left my information, told them what it was about. Four or five hours later, I got a, got a beep on my beeper, called the number. It was an FBI agent, and his name was Alan Colt. Him and I had some conversations, and I told him what, what I thought and you know what I heard. So he was doing some poking around and trying to find some more stuff. And he's like, let me see what I can do, Gary. How soon after the closure of your brother's case when you called him? Two weeks. I waited. This FBI agent looked into it. He read the case reports, and he said, in black and white, they did the investigation. He said, I need more than that to look at something to see. I said, well, this detective told me he laid down. He goes, well, that's good, but that's not enough. He said, him saying he did a shit investigation, Jerry, he said, doesn't mean anything. He says, if there's something deliberate that I can put my finger on, then we do something about this. I said, well, what about is the connection, father and him and the detective being uh, partners? He goes, well, that's... <laughs> Pretty ironic, I'd say that, but Jerry, I have to have something more solid than that to do something with it. So that was the extent of it. He really couldn't do anything, he told me. So that was the end of that. I mean, we had some conversations, extended his condolences to me, and he just said, Jerry, listen, this is my direct number. You get anything else that I could sink my teeth into, call me back. I'm here. But I wasn't able to get anything besides that. I just, was I being one-sided because it was my brother? Maybe a little bit, but on the other hand, my brother was unarmed. That guy was not smaller than my brother. He was actually bigger. He was more a solid weightlifter type of guy than my brother was. He said he was so scared that he shit his pants, that my brother made him so scared he shit his pants. That's a nice thing to say. To the detective or the state's attorney. That sounds great. Was that the end of the journey for the investigation and the hope that something would happen to this individual? Yes, absolutely. It's interesting because I purchased the home at, in the 5200 block of Sayre on the southwest side. I was playing catch with my son at the park down the street. And while I was standing there, I watched a lot of cars coming and going from the house in the middle of the block so my son threw the ball past me and it went out of the park across the street so i went to get it and there was a guy sitting on the porch and i uh i said uh i said sir i'm sorry to bother you i'm just curious you notice there's a lot of cars that go in and out of the house down there he says yeah they're probably selling dope out of it i see it all the time i go okay i said i'm a policeman i live up the block he goes yeah i'm a retired policeman I introduced myself, and he introduced himself, and it was Mike Lum's father. It was kind of crazy. The thought came through my mind. I said, boy, should I, should I get this fucking guy to get his son over there? That crazy thought in my head, thank God, went away a couple seconds later. How soon after your brother's death was this? This was years later. This was probably nine years, ten years later. I ended up meeting this guy's father, a retired policeman. By chance, playing baseball with your son. Yeah, and he lived a block away from me. So how many times did his son pass by my house because it was a one-way street? And that's way back from his dad's house. So, 
man, I could have been out there watering my grass a couple of times or cutting my grass, and this guy drove right past me, his son. How does your brother's death change you as a police officer? What does this do to you? And I also want to know what it did to your family, but also as important, what did it do to you? What change happened having, A, his death, which is horrific, and then seeing the organization that you're working for as a young cop behave the way it did? Yeah, this is crazy. And I don't know. I mean, right after that happened, um, probably for, you know, probably a good month, um, you know, I had a difficult time sleeping and slept with my gun on my nightstand. You know, the sense that my oldest brother was killed was shocking to us. But it also, I would say it scared me a little bit. It scared me and it made me nervous because I'm thinking, you know, my brother was, he was my oldest brother. And I just thought, boy, someone stabbed him to death. I mean, someone after us or something. I mean, I know it's a crazy thought they have. But, I mean, it affected me for, literally, for, it took me a month to be able to to get some decent sleep again because I just played it out in my head over and over again about him being killed and this guy walking away from it. It was surreal to me, really, because I just never expected something like that to happen to any of my family members. And it really affected my, my mother, of course, you know, the most because... She lost a child, and it was her baby. It was her firstborn, and it was it was very tough. And it was tough on all of us. My sister drank heavily. She was very close with my brother Bill. They were up in the top four firstborn, and they had the same personalities. She drank heavily, excessively. You could almost say that she got to the point where she was an alcoholic for a while. She would call me playing songs, drunk off her ass. And I tell her, Stel, yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. But Stel, come on, you know, get some rest. A couple times she got to the point where she was drinking so heavily, it was ridiculous. I got, I got called up by the desk and said, you got to visit her at the desk. And I look at my watch, it's fucking 3.30 in the morning. I'm like, who the fuck's visiting me at the desk? So my partner and I drive in. We come from the back door of the station. I go up to the desk. There's a woman working, uh, Jill Elliott, a uh, great girl. She died of cancer, too. She was a wonderful woman. I go, hey, Jill, what's up? And she goes, hey, Jerry, your sister was here. And I go, my sister was here. I'm thinking, what the fuck happened? And she goes, yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, I think she's outside still. And I go down the stairs, out the front, and there she is sitting across the street. With her windows down. Well, she's not a police station, but she's got her windows down. And I walk up and I go, Oh, what are you doing? I brought you some donuts, but she's fucked up. <laughs> fucking three thirty in the morning. So I said, "What?" I said, "You're fucking drunk. What's wrong with you? What are you drinking? Where'd you go for donuts? Sixty first and Western." I said, "Come on, Stel, what the fuck?" I tell her, "Move over." So she drives off, and my partner and I are chasing her for about five blocks, and we get her to pull over again. Pull her out of the car and. Fucking push her into the passenger side, and I ask him to follow me and drive her home. And I put the car in the garage, you know, walk her up the stairs in the back door and wake my brother in law office. And Mike, the fuck, she drove over to Inglewood. 
3.30 in the morning. He goes, what am I supposed to do? So I hit her keys. Next day, called her and read her the fucking riot act. You know, that went on for years, man. Took it hard. Drank, drank, drank. Yeah, he left four children and his wife behind. Uh, children. Oh, you know, you try to say, you know, I, I wish I would have did more for them too because I just, I didn't do enough. Do you have guilt about not going to the scene immediately? Do you replay this moment in your mind that you should have gone? No, because, you know, I probably would have did something rash like shot the guy or beat the fuck out of him and lost my job. And you don't know when that first call came in whether he was stabbed already or not, or he must have been. Otherwise, the individual at the bar who worked in internal affairs wouldn't want a place to call just on a fight. Except for speaking to my brother, John, who was there with him. That took a toll on him, too, to witness his brother dying. So I, I don't know how long it lasted. or uh, It didn't seem like, like long between the radio calls. It's obviously a blessing, actually, that you didn't go. Yeah, and, you know, I played that over my head, uh, you know, thousands, maybe a thousand times, maybe a million times. If I would have went to that bar, I would have did something I shouldn't have did. And I'm glad I didn't go. Did not know it was my brother until my brother paged me. Didn't know my brother John was with him either. So I'm glad I didn't go there because, honestly, he probably would have walked, but I probably went to prison because I probably would have shot the fucking guy. How does this change you as a cop? So back to that question, are you a different Jerry Finnegan as a police officer now? I can't say in one respect. I saw a lot of, for lack of a better word, a lot of carnage. A lot of gangbangers murdered, shot with their brains hanging out of their heads. That's some bad, nasty scenes. You become callous as a policeman, even as a young cop, because you're like, your first body, you're like, oh, fuck, thinking about it over and over again. But after a while, it's like, yeah, fuck it. You know, that's the life they choose. They're gangbangers. You know what I mean? And you find yourself laughing at some of the situations because it's kind of morbid. But after my brother passing away and the anguish we went through, I thought about it and I said, you know what? This dude here laying on the ground or in this car, that's somebody's son or somebody's brother. So there was no more laughing or being callous about it. It was... Basically, it made me look at things a little differently because that was somebody, regardless if they were a gangbanger, they were still somebody's family member and they lost them. So I looked at it a different way. I don't think I went out of my way to like beat people up because I was depressed about my brother. It did change. It changed the fact that, you know, my brother, and, and I would talk to my partner about this too. I said, you know, dude, because he knew my brother. He met him a couple of times. He liked him and I just said, Brian, look at how fucking easy it is to get away with murder. You just got to fudge it up a little bit and make sure you got the right people in the bar that are favorable to you and everything will work out. Is there an innocence lost because you're new on the force, relatively new, and you're probably an idealist about your job? But then your personal experience is that your brother is murdered. Does that knock you down a few notches about what you're doing? And thinking you're already calloused and you're seeing the violence and the crime, but 
do you have less of an opinion about CPD and the integrity of policing in Chicago? Or did you just feel like it was an isolated type of thing? I didn't think it was isolated, Neil, but kind of bad to say it this way. But you're out there on the street as a cop. You, you can't equate it to being at war because it's not at war. There's no war. You're out there trying to lock the bad guy up. We talked about this previously. There's a lot of good people uh, that lived in Inglewood, trapped in that neighborhood because that's where they grew up or that's where they chose to live. But they were prisoners in their own neighborhoods, in their own, in their own homes and on their own blocks because of these gang-banging thugs. And I saw the way, even the way I treat them. I didn't have a problem, you know, if some of these guys got out of line or did something, well, then they were going to get a punch in the stomach. Especially when they started resisting you or fighting with you. Or, that's the way it was. But you feel that you try to do the right thing, but it's hard because everything is cut and dry when you are out there chasing these guys and they run and are running with a gun. And then they duck in someplace and they come out and they give up. Then you find the gun. But you say he had the gun the whole time. Because he did have that gun. But when you lose sight of that gun and you put it in the case report that way, guess what's going to happen? That guy's walking. If you literally lose sight of it and you say you lose sight of it, he's walking. But if you see him with it, and you lose sight of him, and you see him again with the gun, you're saying you saw him the whole time with the gun. That's right. That's right. So it's kind of like a circle. You're out there. These guys are bad guys. They're doing bad things. But they're going to beat the case on a technicality. So, I mean, to me, it's like that everywhere. All the police were doing the same thing. So to me, it was like acceptable. Weren't you taught this? That's not the course that you learned, but that's what we call the creative writing. Creative writing. But did you have someone who guided you to say, this is going to happen. Make sure you explain that you saw the gun the whole time. Otherwise, the guy's going to walk. Yeah. My trainer, Jim, never did that. If they beat us, they beat us. That was the end of it. Everybody else I worked with, the way it was. These guys aren't going to beat you. If they're out there doing what they're doing dirty, you're going to send them to jail. And you're going to help them out a little bit on that case report. You're, you're going to hear, well, it's wrong no matter what, how you slice it. Okay, maybe it is wrong. But is it wrong for them to be out there fucking carrying a gun shooting at people? This guy isn't uh, Johnny fucking Eagle Scout. This guy is some fucking thug who's been in and out of the shit house his whole life. And now he's carrying a gun and he's either going to stick somebody up or he's going to fucking shoot somebody and murder him. After your brother's death, do you have less of an opinion about your job or CPD? Not less of an opinion about my job, but the realization that this can happen. It can happen to anybody and it can be dictated any way they choose. And I would learn that later in my career, that things could be, things could be changed. And unfortunately, you see on the news where some of these people are 
are getting out of prison that were truly innocent. But a lot of the other ones get out because they're able to fudge the facts, get a jury or a, a judge to believe it. You, you see it. You, you realize it later. They get more experience and actually see with your own eyes, witness the stuff that's done, how easy it is. This concludes Conversation 5. 